Joining me now to discuss is Dave Sirota. David Sirota, you were the first person that popped into my brain when I heard Fourth Amendment. Does that have David Sirota worried? Boston Globe has now started picking up and running with a potentially politically deadly story that was first unearthed by the great David Sirota. God bless this guy, David Sirota. I love that guy. David Sirota is not a journalist. He's a hack. Even the New York Times has called you a populist rabble rouser. Okay. Are you a Che Guevara? Are you a Che Guevara for our age? Uh, and you look forward to a day when college students wear your face on their shirt and don't know what you did? Tom Frank and I are longtime friends for, God, I don't even want to say because it's been so long and it'll just tell everybody how old we are, but we decided that we want to have a conversation or maybe a series of conversations and explore maybe trying to do some podcasts together. So we thought that the week in which the market exploded, or at least a piece of the market exploded, was a good week to to chat. Uh, So Tom, thank you for, for doing this. Mr. David Sirota, it, it is a long time. I actually, I remember, uh, <laughs> didn't you used to work at, when did it, when I met you, you worked, didn't you work at the, um, come on, that think tank. The Center for American Progress, yes. 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 Uh, that's where I got all my gray hair when I worked for John Podesta <laughs> at the Center for American Progress. And my last, my last gasp of working there was being um, yelled at by House Democrats for trying to get them not to vote for Joe Biden's bankruptcy bill, which enriched the credit card companies and oh screwed over God. millions of people. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, that that's, was, uh, it was, it was quite, quite an experience. Um, and now here we are. But that's like that. Yeah. Isn't that funny? And I mean, and the, the, the world of D.C. just spins on in its own way, you know, chewing people up and spitting them out and never looking back. Never looking back. Or, you, you, I mean, it's one, of the, it's one of those places where it's like you, 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 you either beat it or join it. And, and I, I, I beat yeah. it. I, I, yeah. I, I just couldn't handle it. I can't you believe be, you're still you living You walked away. <laughs> and you're still living there. I do. But, I, I mean, look, the same thing has basically happened to me. I, I, uh, I, for a while, was the toast of the Democratic Party. Remember What's the Matter with Kansas? Oh, my God. Do I remember? You were like the big... You, it, yeah, it was and, like you had uh, cracked the, a code. Yeah, and then, and then, and then, then I did something really, really, really wrong. <laughs> what did you do? I, I, I criticized the Democrats as well. Oh, I mean, that's not allowed. Wrong. You can't do yeah. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you criticized. But it was the same thing that you just mentioned. I, I pointed out their role in this this awful system, you know, and uh, and their it's not just complicity in some ways. They're uh, you know as responsible as the Republicans uh, for you know for where we are. Careful, you're going to be accused of saying both parties are the same, uh, and that's well, that's... they're not the same. They're they're they. Re- I mean, I've come on. We've talked about this, at, uh, you know, ad infinitum. They represent different elites. Yes. I mean, the, the Democrats, obviously, I vote for Democrats. You know, all my friends are Democrats. You know, you, you, you know, Bernie Sanders is a Democrat, basically. Uh, there's there, you know, there's no comparison. So let's uh, let, let's start before we get to the GameStop uh, not, uh, nonsense or GameStop microcosm. Let's first start with something that you and I talked about a little earlier this week offline, which, which is this whole idea of the $2,000 checks, which is an issue that we are covering pretty aggressively at the Daily Poster. And what's interesting is, is that uh, after Joe Biden said, uh, promised that when the Senate goes Democrat, uh, that 
they will be immediately, these checks will go out. All of a sudden, it's now they're $1,400 checks. They're not even going to be probably considered until March, and they may be even further means tested. And as we discussed and as we subsequently wrote, there's a very George Bush, read my lips, no new taxes thing going on here. And, and my question to you on this is the Democrats made this pledge, very crystal clear pledge. Uh, elect us to the Senate, help us win the Georgia Senate races, you will get $2,000 immediately. Now, it depends on your definition of immediately. But the question that I keep coming back to is, are we p- past the time in which a, a read my lips, no new taxes pledge actually matters at all? I guess what I'm asking is, is but back in, in 1988, that was seen as like, he made a crystal clear pledge. Uh, George Bush violated that pledge. It was a big deal in the election. And I don't know if he exactly lost the 92 election because of that pledge, but certainly it played a role. But I wonder if we're now in an era where people don't even have a 15-minute memory. And so you can just— Oh, they'll remember this. You really think so? Yes. What what made what sank George Bush— uh, was that he had emphasized that. And I mean, he, do you remember what a jerk he was? <laughs> I, I really just, dis- I'm older than you, but not by a lot, but uh, I really disliked George Bush Sr. And part of it was because he he faked this kind of swaggering truculence. Do you remember this? I do. And that was, that was part of it. Read my lips. What an asshole to say, you know, just to put it that way. And he was trying to take part in this sort of right wing culture of assholishness. Do you remember I mean? the line before it? I, I just recently rewatched <laughs> oh, no, it where, where he was like, was he was it? like, if the Democrats come to me and they send me this, I'm going to say no. And if they come back to me again, I'm going to say yeah. no. And if they come back to me again, I'm going to say, read my li-. like. It was like, you're just such a jerk <laughs> off. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> I know. So he, he made such a big deal out of it. And by the way, just I don't want to get off the subject here, but that election, 1988, that was one of the worst elections I've ever lived through. It was it, all the culture wars. Do you remember that? The flag, It was about flag burning and like George Bush pretending he liked country music and pork rinds. And the, of course, the Willie Horton, you know, Michael Dukakis was letting murderers out of jail and, you know, I, the only thing I really remember about it, racist, racist uh, frenzy. Do you the remember this? Th- th- I remember the only thing I really remember about it, because I was, I guess, in sixth grade when the 88 presidential campaign was happening. I have a vague memory. It was either that year or maybe or maybe I saw it the year after where Saturday Night Live did a skit where there was a talking flag and the talking <laughs> flag. <laughs> said, please don't burn me. And I, I remember oh being like, God. I remember oh not God. understanding the joke. Well, and, it was, the whole thing was made up. There was no epidemic of flag burning. <laughs> it was just, it was a fantasy. It was all done because they had discovered that uh, Dukakis, who is the Democratic candidate, was a member of the ACLU. And the ACLU famously likes to defend, you know, oh, I remember what it was. Uh, Dukakis had been skeptical about kids saying the Pledge of Allegiance in elementary school or something like that. I mean, I can't believe... It was some incredibly small thing, and they blew it up into a panic over flag burning. But, like, as stupid as our politics are now, that seems like almost unfathomably stupid that an election was about that. That that fall, that fall, I went to... um, 
I, it made me so mad. The whole thing made me so mad. I went to a Thanksgiving uh, dinner. I was at, at, at some people's house. I didn't know them. I just got invited to it. It was somewhere in Virginia. And uh, I remember one of the other, uh, another guy my age at this party was wearing a T-shirt with a picture of the American flag on it. <laughs> and under it, it said, try burning this one. It's, I mean, it's really. <laughs> I, I got so angry. It made me so mad. It was so stupid. Like he's like, you know, showing his defiance, you know, to nobody, to nothing. This is no one is no one is burning flags. But, you know, that's anyhow, that was. I'm so sorry. I took you far away. No, it's okay. Stuff. So, so, so let's talk. No about- new, no read my lips. No new taxes. And uh, and so then he and then he goes and he gets he gets elected and he gets all responsible, right? He gets all responsible and he's like, we got to get this deficit under control. And uh, and part of it is they they do raise taxes. Um, the 1990 I, I, budget deal. Yeah, and I don't remember what taxes they raised. I think it was like gasoline taxes. It was something regressive, you know. It might have also been income taxes, but it, you know, anyhow, it, yes, the uh, uh, Republican Party, uh, it just, it, it, you know, it sent them into a, an uproar against their own leader. Uh, and you can find it's very easy to find people to this day who claim that's why he he went out and lost to uh, Bill Clinton. Now, I don't know if that's not my, I mean, the real reason he lost is because Ross Perot was running. And also because, I mean, George Bush was, uh, this was a terrible campaigner. This guy, once, and Lee Atwater had died by that point. Lee Lee Atwater was kind of like the Karl Rove of those days, or the the Steve Bannon of those days, this kind of evil genius. (laughs) Right, so the question question now is, can Joe Biden or, or, or not even Biden, do we live in a culture that is even able to hold people accountable I, I, for, for a I, breaking a, co- a promise? Well, like look, that? when you when you make a promise that's that simple and you make it in a, a way where you are insisting on people understanding you, like, you know, read my lips, which is what the Democrats were doing. Uh, you can't get out of it. He has to come. He has to come through on this. Now, look. If uh, it, let's say he doesn't, and and he turns out to be a great president in other ways, and he he gets the uh, vaccine out to everybody in like three months, and he gets uh, the economy roaring again, we'll forgive him, okay. But if he doesn't, if he's just an average president, uh, yeah, this is going to come back to haunt him. I, a, I can't believe they're dilly dallying around. I mean, and I want to put an asterisk on that. Uh, it, part of me can believe that they're dilly dallying around in the sense that they're Democrats and they always do that. But but in a certain sense, this was such, as you allude to, such an explicit promise. It was so crystal clear. And I should add, it's such a simple thing to do, right? Like, just cut a check. Like, just write It is kind of, also kind of funny that, they're, that it's going down in the same way as... Uh, uh, Bush's uh, no new taxes pledge, which is, you know, they want to be all responsible, you know, <laughs> because they don't want to re- drive the deficit too high. Oh, to- oh totally. And, and actually, I want to that, that's a good segue to a different aspect of this, which I, I wrote about this week, which is about the Democratic Party of universalism versus the Democratic Party of means testing and complicated uh, esoterica. And by that, I mean, basically, it feels like that the old Democratic Party had some innate understanding that 
universal programs, Social Security, Medicare, public education, that in involving everybody, in even allowing those programs to be accessed by millionaires and billionaires, that that was a small price to pay for uh, programs that everybody felt like they had uh, skin in the game in, and thereby creating a political consensus in defense of those programs, but that the modern-day Democratic Party is not that party. It's, it's a party that fetishizes um, kind of technocratic, uh, alleged precision. And so now we're in a situation where they've promised something, not even universal, by the way, you know, as the original proposal was for uh, people making $75,000 or households at $150,000, but portrayed as near universal, and that is most of the country. And now they're whittling it down in the name of like, you know, it's got to be more, more precisely targeted. It's got to be more, more uh, you know, narrower, more means tested. And I feel like that just is, it's such a perfect microcosm of a party that in, in allegedly trying to uh, make things uh, more precise ends up making things more complicated, ends up telling the country, you know, you're not even sure you're going to be eligible uh, for this program. And that that's, a, that's kind of a facet of so many of their programs. There's some sort of aversion uh, from, from them to just having something be simple. And I feel like that's a huge part yeah. of the problem here. Yes, well, it gets you at the, the the larger problem of the Democratic Party, which which is that they fetishize complexity. Look, the, uh, the means testing, you know, and having things uh, be more progressive than regressive, you know, that's that's that seems like a good idea in the abstract. Uh, but what, what? But you're exactly right that when it comes right down to it, that one of the reasons that Social Security is so very popular is because it's universal, and, and that's you know. You can't say that about it, uh, uh, basically any of the other programs that these guys, whenever you, you, you start doing means testing and all the other testing, everybody assumes that it's not for them. You know that it's just going to it's going to give them nothing. Yeah, I, uh, I saw David Dayan at the at the American Prospect wrote an, an article actually it was for the New Republic a while back. But it, basically he argued that all of this complexity is a huge tax on Americans free time. That that everything. Yeah. Have you ever tr- wait? Have you ever tried to to apply for any of these things? It's like filling out, you know, it's like filling out your 1040. You know, it's it's really, really, really hard. I mean, I can't stand at the in my own life. I, I you know, I got I, I I have to file this or that tax form, and it takes so much time. And and my wife knows this. Like, I will stay up late at night, like doing the receipts and doing the, you know. And these are things that you have to do. But there there are moments where I'm like, I'm just in a terrible mood because I'm like, why do I have to do all of these like these this paperwork? just to kind of like exist in the world. And I'm not blaming only the Democratic Party for that. I'm right, just of course that- not. But, but the, wait, the ultimate example here is Obamacare. Now, I, I am myself, I do not use Obamacare. We have, uh, I'm very, we're very fortunate that we have, a, you know, a private health insurance policy. But uh, I know people who do. And it's it's just like staggeringly difficult. And, the, and you know, has wound up, it's just, you know, um, uh, you know the the insurance itself is not that great. Yes, well, we we wrote about that uh, uh, earlier uh, a couple of weeks ago about uh, Biden proposing more subsidies for ACA exchanges. And one of the things that comes out when even you look at the program, it, the ACA exchanges have 
very, very high claim denial rates. Uh, people are not all that happy with them. Uh, they're expensive. They're yep. co they're complex. I mean, here's the thing. Yeah, in my but, own but life, the legislation the legislation itself, remember, was so complex that n uh, almost nobody, except for its designers, and sometimes not even them, could tell you how it was supposed to work. Do you remember yes, this? I do. And the reason it was all so complex was because they were trying to give us some kind of universal health care system while at the same time preserving the private insurance industry. It's, uh, it's like it's impossible. And, you and can't also make something, big pharma. You can't make something <laughs> simple when you're trying to pump money into a giant pile of red tape. And that is what the <laughs> insurance industry actually is. It's just a giant pile of red tape. I don't know about yeah. you, but like I start to get like, we all have our little pet peeves. Like the thing in, in, in my pet peeve, the thing that gets me all like tight in the chest is like the idea of having to call up, for instance, an insurance company. You're going to be on hold for like eight hours. You're going to yeah. be transferred to like 17 people. You're trying to ask a simple question. And to my mind, like if, if you ask me, hey, you may have to pay a little bit more in taxes or in whatever whatever it is. To have something be simple, to have something be easy, to have something not take, you know, eight hours on hold to three different or seven different people. Like, yeah. I feel like that's that's money well spent. And yet I yeah. feel like we live in a country in which the idea of paying like one cent more in taxes to make anything easier at all is like yeah. that that's like an un-American concept. Now maybe it's un-American right. because people assume that paying one more cent in taxes isn't going to make anything any easier. I, I don't know. Well, you just have such incredible, you know, opposition to raising taxes as George Bush discovered back in back in, you know, yes. 1992. But it, what's funny is everything that you just said came out during the debate over Obamacare. Uh, you remember that debate? It wasn't all that long ago. I do. It was. Uh, it was actually one of the. I was fascinated by it because uh, you know, Obama himself, uh, you know, was was laying down a really good critique of the private insurance industry. But then, you know, his solution turned out to be, you know, a total half measure as as was everything that he did. But but one of the things that that kills it is it is it his party's love of complexity. Yes. You know, they're that, you know, that they that they couldn't just go for the uh, a simple solution or a simpler solution of all the different things that were on the table and that were within the realm of the possible. No, they had to go with this, this thing that nobody understands. So let me I wonder, I wonder a the, million the, moving parts, the love of complexity. Let's just talk about that for one one more sec. Is it like that things have to be complicated in order to try to put impossible pieces together. For instance, it's going to be inherently complicated if you're not willing to take on your insurance donors, if you're not willing to actually challenge the insurance industry. Well, that's okay, that's the key though. That, okay, so, so if, if 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 you're if you're willing to do that, then you can come up with, you know, then it's it, it, the whole thing becomes much 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 simpler. Right. So you I know, want you so, can so get there's universal health care easily. So there's that dynamic. They don't want to take on their donors, so therefore things end up being Rube Goldberg machines to try to both appease their donors and and achieve yeah. some sort of public yeah. goal deliver something yeah. something yeah. Right. but then there's the other side of it which is like i which is actually even more annoying which is that i feel like there's like this best and brightest know-it-allness like 
if we just structure it exactly perfectly and tweak it this way and make it just so precious and fine and, and finely tuned, we'll get, you know, every single dollar to only people who quote unquote need it, right? Like in, in this in this uh, debate over checks. And some, sometimes you want to be like, guys, okay, like, Maybe you could you could slice it more finely and you could split hairs, but but simplicity actually is a benefit unto itself. Like the, like that's something that's good, even if you have to you know even if it's not as precisely targeted as you want. I feel so. I guess what I'm saying is I feel like they're kind of intellectual narcissism in some cases makes them forget that sometimes the public just wants things that are easy to use and simple. Yeah. Can I remind you of? I mean, I, I I hate to go back to this stuff. It's this was, but I wrote about this in Listen Liberal, which we were talking about before. I'm going to read from it. Uh, Jay Rockefeller said that they, that called Obamacare the ACA. He called it the most complex piece of legislation ever passed by the United States Congress. Uh, health insurance official from Massachusetts said we took the most complex health care system and got on God Green's, God's green earth and made it 10 times more complex. And so I asked, why did Obama and company do this? And there is an explanation out there. One of the guys who designed it, uh, an economist at MIT, was at an academic conference in 2013 that unfortunately for him was videotaped. And he says that the law at, at this academic conference, this guy, this MIT economist said, the law was deliberately, quote, written in a tortured way with a, quote, lack of transparency that was meant to confuse evaluators. Uh, that's not a quote. That's my words. And thus get it past the clueless and bewildered public. The exact phrase that the economist used was the stupidity of the American voter. Wow. I mean, that's I yeah. mean, it's so but it's like wait, think about the complexity. And here's a good segue to Wall Street. We know and this is how I continue in the, in the book. We know that complexity serves exactly this purpose in other branches of professional practice. Uh, think of uh, Wall Street's technical dialect, for example, which is designed to make outside scrutiny difficult, if not impossible. You know, they invent these oh, well, academia does the same thing. Remember, I got a, I spent years in academia back in the 80s and 90s, where they were uh, inventing jargon. This was a hot subject at the time. They were inventing this kind of um, impenetrable jargon to uh, to draw a barrier between themselves and the general public to make to make what they were doing deliberately opaque to the general public. This is a, a sort of a common strategy. What's weird is to see the Democratic Party doing this. I mean, it tells you something about who they are. I mean, this was once the party of organized labor and, you know, working people, you know, Joe Biden, right? Middle-class Joe. But now it's a party that is um, invested in this, uh, you know, opaqueness, uh, this complexity for its own sake. And that, and honestly, that's why I was ultimately concerned that they weren't necessarily serious about $2,000 checks because I was like, Wow, this is so atypical for them. Yeah, it's so straightforward. It's so it's so obvious and easy. I can't really believe. And by the way, it's worth adding that they were brought kicking and screaming to that policy. Yeah. If yeah. you remember, and, and I realized that, of course, that, of course. that this it was is, it was Bernie supported it, and then Trump remember exactly Trump came out and and uh, and said he thought it was a good idea. And, and you know what's really funny about that is that I I, I felt at the time back in this is in December. Biden came out in early December, it came out in the New York Times, that Biden had told 
congressional Democrats to accept a bipartisan compromise without any uh, survival checks at all. And then Bernie kept hammering on it, and then it ultimately got to $600. He was pushing $1,200. And then Trump came out and said he wanted $2,000. And I felt like there was both, there was like a simultaneous thing that happened where Democratic elites were like sort of eye-rolling Trump and Bernie as kind of portraying them as kind of simpletons. Oh, you just want to cut people a big check. But it was obviously really popular. And then there was like some spark that went off in Chuck Schumer's brain where he was like, actually, this is this would be good for us to hammer on uh, for the uh, Georgia Senate elections. And so there was this kind of convergence of like, okay, yeah. maybe it's more simple than we're used to, but it's a good political opportunity. And then they hammered it. And then even Biden came along, who had been, you know, not supportive of it before. He came along, he goes to Georgia, he says, you know, elect these guys and immediately we're going to get checks. And it was like, wow, all the politics came together. And yet now here we are. And like, he's already negotiating against himself, saying that if the Republicans want to whittle it down, he'd be open to negotiation. And I feel like the <laughs> danger here, as you've alluded to, is it's like they're be- they're walking into the same stereotype of they promise things and then they don't deliver and we've seen this so many times it's actually become almost car- like it's become like a parody of the Democratic Party like like the, the, their constant word parsing I mean we tracked how his language changed he said you know we will immediately end the block on $2,000 checks we will pass them immediately that was him before the election Almost you right after the election, he said, we will complete the job of get it was some some line about we'll complete the job of getting you, you know, the full two thousand dollars, which now we're defining as fourteen hundred dollars plus six hundred dollars. So we're going to actually it's not going to be a two thousand dollar check. And now we're going to potentially negotiate it down to be even more in means tested. And it's like you guys are behaving like everybody suspects yep. that yep. you don't you're not serious. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. By the way, I want to, I want to talk about some Wall Street stuff. Yes, uh, yes. Because the, what's, well, going, let's on the, is, yeah, what's the, going on is so amusing. Yes. Right so they, now. so the, the GameStop situation for those who are <laughs> tuning into this later, I'm, I don't think anyone's going to forget. But the stock GameStop, uh, uh, Game Game GameStop, right? Uh, GameStop. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a retail company. You often see it in strip malls. Uh, it's it's it's. You know, its stock was pretty moribund. It wasn't really going anywhere. And it turned out uh, all of these hedge funds had bet against it, bet on it going down. They had uh, they had sold it short. Okay. now, I don't know how that information got out to the general public, but somehow it did. They saw, as as far as I know, they that uh, that it became clear that uh, notorious hedge fund short sellers had large positions in uh, GameStop and hedge funds do have to file periodically their positions in different stock. And uh, let me just stop and and say this. It's funny that this is, I find this particularly funny because GameStop I've never gone to except for the last two months when we bought a Nintendo Switch for the kids during the pandemic. Uh, So I've been to GameStop a bunch. I actually kind of love GameStop. but what the 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 folklore? I've never been this, in one. Yeah, it's I, a pretty I, cool I, place. <laughs> the the folklore behind this is is that the folks on Reddit, some folks on Reddit, got annoyed. And I don't know if this is apocryphal, but the I've read this that some folks on Reddit not only generally dislike hedge fund short sellers, but also were annoyed that the hedge fund short sellers were going after 
one of these kind of old school video game places uh, that kind of represents, you know, video game culture. And sort of there was kind of a convergence of like, you know what? Screw them. Now, I would ask so wait, you. So, wait, so, so the, the way they're going to screw the hedge funds, let's just be real clear about this, is by buying and holding. Yes. GameStop, by doing the most basic thing in the world, buying and holding. So, okay, some of them are buying uh, long-term options, longer-term yes. options. Yeah. Maybe you know not that long-term, but but uh, but options counting on it going up. But a lot of them are just buying and holding, which is a sort of classic small investor thing to do, uh, that that we at, at Wall Street as as a culture used to celebrate. That's right. Now here's here's where it gets funny. So what that brought on, what that precipitated, was what's called a short squeeze. So instead of going down, the stock uh, either stays still or goes up, and the people who are selling it short have to close out their position. Okay, so let me it's, stop you uh, there. And which I don't I don't want to make it complicated, but basically, it, it, the people who are trying to sell it short, the hedge funds, are suddenly <laughs> in huge trouble, and it's hilarious. Well, so let yeah. me let me stop you there. So. For folks who don't understand short selling, why don't you first explain what is short selling and why are are some people generally annoyed with short selling? Oh, well, short selling is when you're you're betting on a stock to go down. And uh, this this used to be regarded as uh, not unpatriotic, but something close to it, it comes and goes in, in fashion. Right. But uh, it, it, there are times when it's been considered uh you know, not uh, not all American to vote. You know, to, I'm sorry to vote to to bet on 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 shares going down because you want you want a company to to fail. You know, so you're selling short. Uh, and uh, you know, that's of course that's what markets do. Some people uh, uh, bet on a stock going up. Other people bet on a stock going down. Uh, but you know. When you bet on a stock going down, it's a more complicated, you know, you don't just buy and hold the stock. You have to sell it now and then buy it back later and, you know, return it to whoever you borrowed it from. So it puts you in a, a position where your losses are uh, technically infinite. <laughs> you know, like if you buy, if I buy a stock and just sit on it for a year and it goes down in value, you know, my, my losses, I can, you know, I can add it up and see what they are, you know, like. You know, if a stock goes down twenty dollars, then I lost twenty dollars. If I've uh, shorted a stock, that means I sell it now, and if it goes up, then I'm on the hook for an indefinite amount. Who knows? Uh, you know what I'm going to owe. And if you've somehow managed to multiply that by you know by doing it with um, uh, with derivatives, you can be you can get in big trouble really really fast. Okay, and so so, some, so here was the, here was the situation that that happened and that I have questions about, which is, so the, 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 as the story goes, uh, folks on Reddit, uh, retail investors, quote unquote, uh, decided to get annoyed. They, they were annoyed at these hedge funds that were shorting GameStop and a couple other stocks, by the way. Uh, and they essentially collectively uh, bought GameStop, drove up the price of, of the stock which hurt the short sellers, really, really hurt them to the point where they needed a, a bailout yeah. from other from other hedge funds and the like. Uh, <laughs> that's that's which is which is the amusing part. Total, uh, there's all these all these consequences, 
to these people who bet on it going down and it turns out they're wrong. They made a bad bet, right? I mean, like a really, like a really bad bet. Yeah. It's like, who, 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 who will think of the, of the hedge funders with like yachts? They made made a really un-American bet or whatever. That's how we used to think about, about short sellers or, or, you know, bears, you know, back in the 1920s, they made a, uh, uh, you know, they made a really pessimistic bet. And they were wrong. It was a wrong bet. And they they got in huge trouble. They got into a really bad position, what's called a short squeeze. And they had to go out and, and, and basically capitulate and buy <laughs> buy shares in it instead, driving the price up further. That's right. But in the meantime, as they got into more and more trouble, they had to sell their holdings in all these other things to bail that, you know, to, to get money to uh, to get themselves out of the hole in GameStop. And that's what's making the market go down across the board that and then the, also just the the prospect of, uh, you know, of a hedge fund being brought to its knees by a bunch of people on uh, Reddit, which is so disturbing, I guess, uh, to the market. So that's the story. Anyways, we don't of course, we don't know the full story. No, we, we don't. And, and we're not. And, and my guess is you're going to we're going to find out that certain hedge funds were playing both sides and the like of course. but but oh, but but definitely. i but i step back and i ask this question because it's been portrayed as like the little guy versus the uh, uh a big guy institutional investor hedge funds market manipulators and i i think there's something to the idea that you know when you see <laughs> The CNBC hosts essentially weeping, you know, they were like freaking out and like really all upset that, oh my God, I can't believe, like they, it was so, there was so maud. They're calling it, they're calling it populism too. Right, right. So this is like the populist. I, it's just like, it's just like, this is the wake up call for, for me because I wrote a book about this 20 years ago. In the, in the 1990s, we had this very similar kind of national fantasy of small investors beating the professionals. Do you remember like the Beardstown ladies? Totally. There was a mutual fund manager called Peter Lynch that wrote book after book about this. There are these guys called the Motley Fools, had a column in, they were on the internet, had a column in newspapers all over America. And this was their whole motif. That's was right. the idea that that small investors organized via the internet could defeat the Wall Street pros. And it was a kind of like phony populism. It was a silly, you know, they were always celebrating. God, there was a book called The Millionaire Next Door. Do you remember this? <laughs> it was all about like, like what average people could become millionaires by buying stocks, buying and holding stocks, you know? Right, this but the, and this, this is what it's the, being portrayed as now, which is, which is you, you see like, you know, but, but uh, then it was this was regarded as patriotic and not just patriotic. This was what was this was the official explanation for the bull market of the 1990s. It was ordinary investors beating the pros. The pros were all negative. The pros were all uh, elitist. The pros were snobs, all these guys on Wall Street, and they were very uh, they were down on America. But the ordinary people, you know, (laughs) were rallying around their favorite brands, always these, you know, things that you'd find in shopping malls like GameStop and uh, rallying around their brands and pushing them up. And this was the theme of the 1990s. Everybody celebrated this. Everybody talked about this. This is what was supposedly and it was it was all bullshit. 
Right. Well, now, now the narrative, the narrative. I know, is, but now the narrative is completely the other way. We're supposed to be afraid of these people. Right. It's like I mean, it's like they're being portrayed as like the the retail investors are being portrayed as like Robespierre, right? Like Robespierre is like, or, or, or is it is it like the the cyber equivalent of these guys that stormed the Capitol the other day? Yeah, exactly. You like know? that's how it's portrayed. And you see these like maudlin <laughs> CNBC hosts like crying that like the guy, the zillionaire from Melvin Capital. Who like apparently like bought the lost everything, lost everything, but like you know he's like a zillionaire, like he oh my god, it's but that so... was the fantasy. That's that was the fantasy twenty years ago. That's what it was. That's what markets were supposed to do. They were supposed to humiliate the Wall Street pros, right? But that like was I'm, the whole idea. I and I'm kind of like both. Look, if you ask me who who would I root for in this battle between like hedge fund short sellers who are, you know, who have two yachts and like, you know, retail <laughs> investors, like, I, I, yeah, I'm rooting for the retail investors. Well, why root for anybody? It's the whole thing's ridiculous. It's just people gambling one way or the other. The, 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 Except the there is that... a legit hypocrisy going on, which is this. The hypocrisy going on, which I think is actually spotlights something important, which is that that the you know there's the crying cnbc hosts there's the idea that the only the big guys on wall street are allowed to manipulate the market but once the rabble uh gets in on the action then all of a sudden there's supposedly a problem in other words this idea that that the investors who drove the stock up weren't doing anything worse or different than what hedge fund short sellers do and all sorts of other major Wall Street players do to manipulate stock prices for their own gain. So there's a hypocrisy there. But then there's something even deeper, which I think goes to policy, which is that there are now calls for, you know, an SEC investigation, for regulators to step in. I mean, you had the head of the NASDAQ saying- Oh, go go after small traders, go at your date- yeah, yeah, and the and the issue is oh like it's like you it's just, you it's just like two thousand and eight all over again. Right, but it's like you uh, are the guys who, who say that we shouldn't have any regulation, but now things aren't going well for you, and now you're saying you want regulation. So I think there's like it kind of spotlights this idea that like none of the ideology that comes from Wall Street really is principled ideology. It's just change the rules. Exactly. Do whatever whatever makes them rich. So all that stuff from the 1990s, it didn't mean that either. You know, all right. that stuff about the Beardstown ladies, all that stuff about, you know, ordinary people getting rich by buying it. It was all bullshit then and it's bullshit today. They only said it then because that was, you know, that, that brings people into the market, just like in the 1920s. You know, that ropes people in and it gets them to invest, et cetera, et cetera. And it makes the market uh, seem like your friend. You know, something that you want to you don't want to regulate them. You don't want another Glass-Steagall Act. You know, you want in fact, you want to deregulate the banks because they're such good guys. It's all propaganda one way or the other. But it is hilarious. Exactly. as You say these people are such utter and complete hypocrites, you know, that they will they want to be deregulated. They want to be de-supervised. And they've achieved that. They have. They've achieved that, you know, they uh, and uh, but 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 suddenly when it comes, you know, when it comes when, when the shoes on the other foot, then they they go, they run crying to the government. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> I, I look I look at on people and I look at this and I'm like, look, you know, I don't want a future of like one set of speculators versus another set of speculators. Like that's not like it, 
that, that doesn't yeah, sound like a very good century. future. It's, it's the 19th century. It's it's nothing to there's there's no side in this that's our side. You know, there's it's 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 an amusing spectacle, but it's not. You know, this isn't politics. Right, and 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 I I think the the most productive thing that I've seen come out of this is that at least a couple people, although it hasn't been a drumbeat. You know, you hear Wall Street talking about, oh, we want regulation and or maybe a look at some regulation. And then, of course, you've got the the absolutely absurd situation where you've got these platforms like Robinhood uh, who sell themselves to retail investors as, you know, you, we'll let you in on the market. All of a sudden, they're shutting down people's ability to actually continue making money off the situation, trading in the situation. And that's been portrayed as, you know, the apps themselves have sold out their customers. That's a whole separate issue. But at least one thing that came up, I, I read in the, in the American Prospect, you know, Bob Kuttner made the point. He said, you know, one thing you can do is, and, and of course, the fact that nobody's talking about it on Wall Street or, or in Congress, at least not yet right now, is very revealing, is a financial transactions tax. Like a financial transactions tax would actually potentially slow down the pace of, of selling, uh, reduce the volatility, say there's actually a cost to this kind of behavior on either side, uh, potentially disincentivize uh, frantic short selling or running up the prices of, of stocks and the like. But of course, what's so telling, right, is that that's not, e that's not really in the conversation. It's not really in the political conversation because that would force all of the market players, in a sense, to actually cough up uh, some money, at least to fund the police officers, the law enforcement officers of Wall Street, uh, to better police this kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah. but, but to me, a financial transactions tax is the thing that, you know, I, when Kuttner wrote it, I was like, oh, you know, that's actually, that's actually a smart point. Like, maybe that's the kind of thing uh, that we need. But I, I'm, I'm with you, man. Like, I look at this and I hear, you know, I hear, uh, oh, you know, this is like democratized finance. This is like the future. Look at how technology has. So that's just a fantasy. That's the same fantasy as the 90s. And in the 90s, that and that fantasy had a purpose in the 90s, which was deregulation. Yes. And they got and they got deregulation. They got what they wanted. But that's that that the, the idea that the stock market or that you know markets generally are an expression of the of the people's will is uh, is the ultimate capitalist fantasy. I want to uh, so I, like I said, I wrote a book about this uh, 20 years ago now. But there was a TV commercial that they were running back then. This is. You know, in 1999, the high point of uh, the, the great bull market of that era. And there's a and I'm, I described the TV commercial. I'm sure you can find it on the Internet. It was a TV commercial for uh, Daytech and it shows uh, common people smashing. And this is what I thought of, you know, uh, when when people started comparing this to the the people ransacking the Capitol. So this ad from 1999 shows common people smashing their way into the stock exchange smashing down its pretentious doors, pouring through the marble corridors, smashing the visitors' gallery windows, and sending a rain of glass down on the money changers <laughs> in the pit. All of it while they're playing this world beat music in the background, okay? So it's, it's, it's revolution, right? This is the people smashing their way into the New York Stock Exchange. And it's like, it's crazy. This is on TV. This is being shown on, you know, the three great broadcasting networks. And it's not brought to you by the IWW, but by Daytech, this online trading firm. Yep. And then the, the voiceovers, you know, what they're overthrowing is not capitalism, but here's what they're overthrowing. The senseless wall, as the commercial puts it, that stands between you and serious trading. Oh. 
God. I mean, yeah. So they they use the imagery of like of like the French Revolution to to sell it to sell it to sell the stock market to sell it you know an online brokerage. I mean, it's it's so it's so dark. Like it's so dark, right? Like, but that was yeah. There we're gonna was, have like a popular just, uprising. To be able to day trade, <laughs> like it's yes, so dark. Yes, that's it. That's it, man. That's that is that is the limits of our democratic aspiration, you know. And that's so, you know. It is it is amusing to watch this stuff. I'll, I'll just tell I'll just tell you as a way of wrapping this up. I've now seen so many bubbles come and go. I remember when you know when the, when the Soviets lost the Cold War. And Eastern Europe broke free. And uh, immediately you started seeing these weird bubbles and pyramid schemes and Ponzi schemes all, right. over, like, all over the place in Eastern Europe. And then they started you started seeing them here, you know, in the biggest, of course, the 90s, you know, the, the dot com bubble, which then morphed into the real estate bubble, the greatest bubble the world has ever seen. And I was very prudent and I would like stay away from this stuff. But, I, you know, I, 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 I've thought about it for a long time. It's like. Maybe bubbles are the future. And maybe what I should do is like, God damn it, I should just every time I suspect that there's a bubble, I should go out there and get in on it. It's just that you have to then you have to get out right away. You no, know? it's you it's a bubble. I mean, the economy is a bubble machine. I mean, that's obviously I mean, that's obviously yeah. the case. Well, and it you certainly know. isn't it certainly isn't a, 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 a you know a prosperity machine for we the people anymore. It certainly isn't that. No, no, no. No. We we've chosen our culture has chosen the mythology or the dream of pulling the lottery ticket uh and we yeah. have sacrificed the smashing idea away of the new york stock exchange you yes know, it's, we, <laughs> smashing we... the glass in the visitors gallery that's it that's the dream yeah so so we get nothing right we get nothing from our work you work and work and work and work and everything goes to the people on top the boss takes everything the guys on wall street take everything from him uh and and and, and you know th- the 80 or 90 percent of the general public gets nothing, sees no benefits. We're in a boom. Well, we aren't anymore, but you go through these boom periods and the public gets no gets nothing from it. That's right. And, 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 and the mythology undergirds it all, which the, this is good because it at least offers the possibility in theory you get, that you, you can pull lottery the lottery ticket. And, you know, you mentioned the 90s and I always my frame is like a lot of it is like the 80s. And I kept thinking all week, I really did. I was like, this really feels like that last scene in Trading Places where they're trading frozen concentrated orange juice and they artificially, (laughs) I think, I forget if they artificially bit it up or bit it down, but it's all about short and long selling. And, you know, it's not to criticize that movie because I think that movie was actually kind of satirizing everything. But it is to say that like, it's deeply baked into the culture that that this is a, like a normal, uh, and as you mentioned in the oh commercial, God, you mentioned. <laughs> Think of the ultimate example: the Tea Party movement, the great protest movement of our time that we're still paying for, we're still living with the ramifications of, was launched from the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade by by a CNBC host. Right. I mean, he was, and he was purporting to represent. The regular the, people and the traders yes. were supposedly the regular people. I mean, this is how baked in kind of market fundamentalism and like the market is the expression of democracy. This is how baked in that mythology is. And like, I again, 
I want to be very clear for anybody who's listening. Like, if you ask me to choose whose side am I on between retail investors on Reddit and, you know, the short selling hedge fund guy who's got six yachts, like, obviously, I'm on the side of the retail investors. But it's also like, wow, what a dystopian world we live in when, when. But that's, that's the side you get to choose. Yes. It's like, it's so dark. I mean, it's just so, so dark. And I think, unfortunately, we're just going to have to end on that that dark note but at least hey at least we can we can laugh about it and um listen i want to i want to thank you for this uh initial conversation hopefully we'll be doing more of these um and if folks want to find out more about our work dailyposter.com where can folks find out what you're doing tom oh uh it's you know i guess they have to follow me on facebook or twitter uh i also have a website tcfrank.com but i don't i don't update it all that often I feel like uh, but, you're, you're a man who's been like dragged into the social media age, kicking and screaming, and you're still kicking and well, screaming. Well, I used it. to I used to enjoy it in the early days. I would post, you know, uh, vacation snapshots and stuff like that. But it's become so uh, so bitter and and mean, you know. Yeah, totally, uh, totally. That uh, I don't I don't really have a lot of fun on social media anymore. Well, we we try to have some fun. I mean, that's why we named our publication the Daily Poster because we're online and we do we we we, we post a lot. So, Tom, listen. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, today and um, have a good weekend and we'll we'll do this again, okay? All right. We'll Thanks see you later, Mr. Right. Take care.